just want to say hi to any listeners out there. If anybody's listened to my new podcast, this is Insignificant Man. Just put together some recordings, uh, my thoughts, and wanted to share them with people. I also have a channel on YouTube under the same name, Insignificant Man. I put together videos and any other visual aids that I can add to the talks. But if you are not able to access YouTube, my podcasts are available on a lot of different platforms through anchor.fm. So I hope you enjoy and I hope you listen and I'll get started. Okay, today I just wanted to go over a little bit about the, the Bible, the different versions of the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, how they were put together, maybe a little bit about why they were put together, why there's differences, a little bit about the book, the Law of One, and then we'll bring in the Talmud of Emmanuel as well. To get things started, you have the Bible with uh, two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the majority of the Bibles and the different Orthodox religions are pretty similar and are in agreement with 27 books in the New Testament canon. The Old Testament is where things differ. So you'll have Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Their canon consists of, I think, 47 to 54, somewhere in there. And the Catholic Church has 56 to 51 Old Testament books, depending on the version you get. The big joining together and the creation of what we know as the Bible, especially in the Protestant world. The New International Version is probably the most famous, uh, but there's many versions out there. King James Version, actually maybe the King James Version is probably the most famous, infamous. But there was about 393 years, 390 years, somewhere around there, after the resurrection, where they decided to come together and agree on which books were divinely inspired and which letters, you know, considering the letters from Peter and Paul and Timothy and, and the likes in the, in the New Testament, to rule out forgeries because there were some other things popping up which had them worried and they were scared. And so they wanted to bring everybody together, the joining of the minds at the time, the theologians at the time, bring them all together and decide on an official canon that everybody can agree on and agree that it is divinely inspired and everything is true, give it the ominous dominus and you're good to go. And you can tell everybody that reads it, this is the inspired word of God and to think otherwise is heresy and there you go. The first, there's a synod, so it's a, just a group of theologians and scholars at the time that kind of ruled the religious Christian religion at the time. 9393 AD, they had their first synod, their, their first gathering, where they didn't agree 100% on the canon, but it was a majority, they got the ball rolling. Other meetings besides that, 393 was just the more infamous year because they agreed on a layout. <clears throat> and then there was other synods, from, from that time I'm on, so 394, 397, 401, and 426, those are the years they held reoccurring synods meetings. So the most famous one was Synod of Hippo. It's in the region of Northern Africa. Anyways, just a bunch of little detail there. It's to just show you that that's when things started to get laid out what canon they were going to agree to on the Old Testament, what canon were they going to agree to on the New Testament, including all the letters as well as the Gospels. 
and I'm assuming there is a lot of debate on the validity of each and also what they considered to be forgeries were coming out at the time. So they wanted to fight against that and defend against that. So how can, how can we really trust the Bible? The Old Testament versus the New Testament, it's kind of rough. Like it's, it's not an easy task. The New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament has a lot of verification happen to it because of the findings of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So just like when you interrogate a witness or multiple witnesses, you want them to tell you your story, and then you compare the stories of the different witnesses together, then you ask them again and see if those witnesses continue to tell the same story. And then you know if there's, their stories are starting to have holes in them and cracks, and you can verify if they're lying or not. You can kind of do the same thing with text. A text written in this year, this certain year back in this date, and you find one like 100 years later, you put the two together and you see if there's any discrepancies. And if there's not, then you can probably bet that uh, either they're just really good at telling the lie consistently <laughs> or that was the truth. And there's possibly some other texts that filled in in between. And especially what we know, you know, back in the old days, in the biblical times, how they, without the printing press, how they duplicated texts, they took it very seriously. These people transcribing, they not only would go word for word, they would also go the, the number of lines and how many words were on that line. So they went to a certain line, it had to be this certain number. And if it was not a perfect duplication, they tore the whole thing up and started over. Like it was a very tedious process. So they took it very seriously. So the Old Testament and everything it went through. So if you read the Old Testament books, Kings, Solomon, uh, just the time of David, you know, from Moses to David and then David on to King Solomon and then past, you'll know that the, the old Hebrew text had been lost for a certain amount of time. And then found again in the temples or and you know wherever they were popping up. So it's interesting that <laughs> they really didn't take care of these back in those days. There was so much turmoil going on back and forth, I'm assuming, because of all the fighting, that they kept getting lost. And not to mention that they were mobile, but <clears throat> while Moses and the Hebrews were out in the desert wandering around for 60 years and then coming back around until a generation died off. And, but the tabernacle was pretty pretty common thing by that time and the priests at the time the levites you know they were their tribe was the tribe that was supposed to be set aside for the priesthood so they probably took pretty good care of it but once they came into jerusalem and the tribe started to separate and there was a lot of infighting and fighting with other people, uh, you can kind of understand how things start to get lost. This place getting sacked and then taken back over and looted. The fact that any of it survived is pretty amazing. What we had in 1947 was an amazing discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found these papyrus, parchment, bronze scrolls. Uh, there's actually a couple copper scrolls as well, which were interesting. But since the discovery, They've been very serious about translating everything and then comparing what they found to previous texts of the same name. So they had multiple books of the Old Testament that were found, and they also found texts such as 
the book of Enoch. And up until that point, 1947, the only known copy of the book of Enoch was the Ethiopians. With the Ethiopians, they decided to keep that as part of their canon in their uh, Ethiopian Orthodox Bible. All the other groups had thrown it out because it was just so far-fetched, uh, and they just couldn't believe it, what they were reading. And they wouldn't—they didn't think that anybody believing in Emmanuel would believe it either. So it was just like too much for them to ask of people to to believe in. But the amazing thing is when they compared it, oh, and it was also, the book of Enoch was also claimed by everybody else except the Ethiopians to be false. That it was just a made up story. One thing to discredit it, you just put doubt in everybody's mind. Say, nope, that's a forgery. Somebody made that up. That's not divinely inspired. So there you go. But what they found was over thousands of years, it was an exact match what they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls to the original text the Ethiopians had of the Book of Enoch. And if that doesn't scream validity, I don't know what else does. I mean, the fact that two stories can remain identical over 3,000 years of time rolling by, and it's pretty amazing. If you ask me, I think the, I believe the Book of Enoch is very authentic and very real. And when you when you read it, you know, decide for yourself. Just this is what I what I believe personally, but research for yourself, read it for yourself, and just think about what you're reading. It's it's pretty amazing what we know about technology nowadays. You know, at one point Enoch describes the angels going to get wings so they could go fly somewhere. I mean that kind of sounds like technology. He's going to get his wings, he's going to put his wings on and they flew around and the angel showed him all different places about the earth. And one of the other amazing parts about it is when you start trying to figure out what locations Enoch is describing, a couple of people have kind of narrowed it down to the mountain ranges in the Antarctic, which is crazy because now all of a sudden it's coming back to light, becoming more volcanically active down in Antarctica, and it's melting. We've also found that there's over a hundred volcanoes on the western edge of Antarctica and so those are heating up and that's what's melting the ice so it's pretty amazing and Enoch goes into a lot of detail about the land of fire it's all just volcanoes and lava moving so and then he describes the other mountain ranges that kind of make a I guess a square I guess you'd say um, around an open area and it's pretty interesting that part is intriguing I think and also what else is intriguing is his visions that he has and when you compare his visions to the Bible, I mean, it follows right along with the Bible. And he was just given a vision of the complete history of man up until the harvest. So why did they want to throw that book out? Well, it didn't fit in with their plans because they needed people to believe and they couldn't ask him to believe too much. They were already asking people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God slash the Son of God together, but separate, and then the Holy Spirit also together and separate, the Holy Trinity. And then you have to believe that the Pope is divine and from his lineage is the only way you can be Pope. And that comes from Peter, who was said to have been the rock that Jesus built his church. So that's that's what they're going with. That's the background. That's the history. And there you go. 
So you have the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're verifying the Old Testament texts. They're verifying other texts, such as the Book of Enoch. Well, back to the formation the, of the canons. The Bible we have now, it kind of... I don't exactly remember the year, but after the canon was decided, or, you know, originally started and it was laid out, had a rough outline at the Synod of Hippo, then it evolved from there, and eventually the Holy Bible for the Catholics slash Protestants, which all the way up through Martin Luther, and then there is this drive to reform the Catholic Church, and that's where Martin Luther came with the 95 Thesis, stapled it on the door, and the Reformation was born. And then there's the divide. Then you have the printing press as well. The majority of, I believe actually the whole New Testament, if not the majority of the New Testament, was written in Greek. But a lot of these apostles and their missionaries, you know, doing the work in all these different lands, all these different languages, they were doing their best they could to translate. There was some confusion on Peter and Paul's part, just because, you know, that's what humans do. They <laughs> they don't always listen and pay attention to the fine details. Just think about being back in elementary school, you know, in high school. You know, you don't always get every little piece of information correct when someone's just telling you, and you don't have a chance to write it down. A lot of those letters and even the Gospels, weren't written down until like 70 years later, 40 years later, something like that. And and it was from memory and then their best understanding of the gospel at the time. And also from their perspectives of what happened. And, you know, Peter and Paul weren't together the whole time. Paul didn't come into the picture till later. So you also have you know, their different viewpoints as well. Uh, Paul was very learned, and Peter was not. He was uh, he was not literate. Maybe developed into it. I'm guessing because he eventually learned to write some letters, unless he had somebody write them for him. Those are things I really don't know. Um, I've always been curious about. But where where exactly in time makes these gospels and the letters concrete and true as far as they've never been manipulated, they've stood the test of time, and the words have never changed? Uh, I don't know if there's any way to really prove that unless you start finding some older texts and which match and or the original writings. So you can go and review the Greek, which is why... You know, you go to seminary or any Bible schools. I don't know if any Bible colleges require it. They should, but I know seminaries do. You have to take Greek, and then you have to take Hebrew for the Old Testament. So you have to be able to go back to the original Greek text and be able to translate and understand the meaning of Greek and, and how to look everything up and and so on and so forth. But when you look back at, you know, we have the Greek versions where it's nicely printed out, you know, nothing's confused. But when you look back at the letters and the papers that they originally wrote them on, I mean, they were writing things in the margins and it was very unlegible. So, you know, were there gaps that might have been filled in? I believe so. Could you take your best guess? Yeah, I think they were trying. But also... If there's certain words that just don't translate the same, you know, different words could possibly get mixed up. And is it intentional? I don't think it was always intentional. 
Could there have been some instances where it was intentional? I think absolutely. Human nature, especially if we have something so big as a, of a movement as the Christian movement sweeping the globe that if something pops up that you look at it and you say, man, that was translated incorrectly. <laughs> like that's not the word that was used. Oh, well, that's the word we're going with. So don't even think about changing it because it would just change the story enough to really change the effectiveness of power and control. So one example is the word faith. What if I told you that 90% of the time faith is used in the Gospels, what word was actually intended to be used was knowledge. And if you change just that one word, faith, to knowledge, now you have a whole population trying to tell the Catholic, Catholic Church, the papacy, that we need to know for ourselves. When the papacy were the only ones that were literate, they kept the peasants dumbed down. You just work the fields. You do the labor. We'll learn Latin, and we'll translate for you. And there you go. There you have it. And we tell you what's what. And then if they do learn Latin, at least in there, it's faith. So you have to have faith. You just have to believe. You just have to believe what, the, what they're telling you from the pulpit every Sunday. And then you have control. And you have accomplished your goal because we know now from the book Revelation that the whole time the beast and the dragon, the negative side of things, they want to use those energy centers that are human nature that are contradictory to love. So you have your red, your orange, your yellow, you have your anger, you have your ego, you have your control. And the biggest one is yellow. They use yellow a lot. It's power and control. You want to dominate, you want to rule. And you skip right over green and you go right to blue and you use wisdom. You're smart about it. You're devious about it. But that's the power that is mainly used is that yellow power. So you want to control the populations. You want to control the masses. You want to be the puppet masters. And this is perfect. If you change that one word of knowledge to faith, then you can tell everybody to just believe in the unseen. When in actuality, what Jesus was always saying was knowledge. You have to gain knowledge. Your spirit can only grow when it has knowledge. I mean, every once in a while, sun shines on the dogs. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and and he, he said that out loud. Like every once in a while, in your ignorance, you might have power that shines through you, but you don't know how you did it. And you don't know what you're doing because you're still blind using faith. In other words, you're uneducated, you're naive, you're ignorant. And you need knowledge. You need knowledge to understand. And if you have knowledge, then you can understand. Once you have understanding, then you gain wisdom. And wisdom and love go hand in hand. And that it was one of the foundational pieces of what Jesus was always talking about and always trying to spread. The masses need to educate themselves. They need knowledge. They need to know the truth. And when you have the truth, then you can start making decisions in your everyday life of love in service to others or love and service to yourself. And here's a good example of uh, an analogy, I guess you'd say, love and wisdom and even knowledge. All right, so pretend you're driving a car, right? We'll call that car, that vehicle you're sitting in, that is love. You're sitting in it. But you don't have a steering wheel. You know you need one because the car is just going all by itself in whatever direction. Wisdom is that steering wheel. So once you have wisdom, you 
are now gaining control of love and where to place it. You know, and without wisdom to steer your love, it can go in, in bad directions. Like you can say you're doing something out of love, but you're actually hurting a lot of people doing it. You're saying you love these people so much. I'll kill whoever I need to kill in order to save these people. I mean, that's what a lot of holy wars have been fought like. So that car that you're sitting in, that car, that vehicle, it's love. It's driving all over the place. But, you know, it's like a Mario game. You got to hit, you got to jump up and get those mushrooms, you know. You got to get those coins. That coin, those coins and mushrooms, that's knowledge. So the more knowledge you get, the more wisdom you gain where you can steer that car. And instead of wandering aimlessly without a way to steer, you're randomly picking up these little pieces of knowledge. But eventually you get to enough knowledge where you have wisdom, you got a steering wheel, you can put your hands on that steering wheel, and now you can steer yourself towards all the knowledge you want and looking for it in any place you can think of. And the more knowledge you gain, the more control you have over love and you have wisdom steering it right along. There's a little analogy for you. Without wisdom, love can go the wrong way very easily. It can go to martyrdom. We know a lot of the saints in history became martyrs, possibly when it wasn't necessary. But you have unchecked love because you have unchecked understanding because of your lack of knowledge. So Jesus was adamant, or excuse me, Emmanuel was adamant about you need to have knowledge. You need to gain knowledge, and not just knowledge of everything, knowledge of how your spirit, body, and mind works. You need knowledge to grow your spirit. Everybody, as soon as they are born, are born with a living spirit. So that's one of those half-truths that is sunk in, and a lot of people aren't going to like to hear this, but our physical bodies, I truly believe, were designed in a certain way lacking a lot. In other words, our physical bodies have always been what you would say dead to sin. Uh, if you've heard any kind of evangelizing talks, you know they say you're dead in sin until you accept Jesus into your heart. And then, you know, he gives you spiritual life. There's a half-truth we have. And what we need to get straightened out, it's very important. Because people hearing this that don't want to believe in God, don't want to believe in Jesus, well, they think, oh, great, everyone else just thinks I'm dead inside and I have no soul. That's not true. That's not true at all. Everybody is born with a soul. Everybody is born with a spirit. That is how we grow, and that is the whole purpose of of third density life is to learn love because you're growing your spirit. We need to grow our spirits and strengthen our spirits in ourselves, just like we train our bodies to be physically capable of doing our jobs, playing sports, whatever, uh, preparing our minds to to be educated and to think for ourselves and to retain information. So in the same way, we have to do the same thing with our spirit. Well, if you're told from day one that your spirit is dead, I mean, it's kind of a disheartening thing to hear. But the truth is, that's not that's not true at all. The truth is, the second you're born, your spirit is incarnated into the human form as a baby. Your consciousness and your spirit are linked. That They are the same. Your consciousness comes from your spirit. They've even done uh, experiments on people dying. So they had the beds on scales. I think this was done in like the 1950s. They had a dying person on a bed. They had the bed on scales. And they checked the weight. <laughs> so when the person died, that scale went down a quarter of a pound. 
and this tells you two things. Something happened, and it was something it was something unseen happened, but that something unseen had a presence in our physical world. So that person had a spirit. It left its body. There was physical evidence of something leaving the body, but we couldn't see it. There is obvious presence of the wind because the kite is flying. Well, there is obvious presence of a spirit that left the body because the weight changed physical plane. So we are born with the spirits. That's what gives us consciousness. That's our personalities. That's what brings in our memories of past lives. But our body and our mind are designed in a way to force them to work together to seek the creator. So the body, if anything is dead in sin, it's the body. Because our spirit and mind have to come together with the body to seek the creator. And once you seek the creator, you're seeking love, and once you find love, and that's where it makes that jump to that green energy center. So we're all, our bodies are all made ready to fill all those energy, activate all those energy centers. But we're only born with the with the red, orange, and yellow. We strive for that green. Well, our spirits are alive in us. They are very immature, and like I said, you have to go through a forgetting every time you're born, so you don't remember anything, but you have a conscience, and. Uh, your conscious mind is guiding you uh, with that. So you know, without that, you wouldn't have really anything. But if you had more than that, then your free will would be taken away because it would change your choice. It would influence your choice, which is taking away your free will to decide for yourself. Our spirits are well alive in every single one of us from the day we are born. If the church has ever kept anybody down on anything, it's this point or at least one of the top three or five points in Christianity and this half-truth is we are all physically born with a living spirit. We have to nurture it and we have to grow it. We have to strengthen it. And the way you strengthen your spirit is through knowledge and the knowledge of the Creator. Once you gain knowledge of the Creator and the truth about the Creator, then you understand how the human body works. You understand things more importantly like sex. Like what is the reason for sex? Is it just procreation and to feel good? No, there is something a lot more going on when it comes to sex. But this world just doesn't understand that yet. And, you know, if you look into kind of some more new agey or Hindu type texts, it'll go into a little more detail. But our culture is so prudent when it comes to that kind of stuff. You don't talk about it. And it's just, it's just you know, hush, hush, which is kind of sad, but things are changing as far as that goes as well. But your bodies are are one big energy collectors. They're walking batteries. They have spirits inside them. You have a mind. You have a body. All three together, you have a divided conscious, a subcon- subconscious, and a conscious mind. So there's some complexity to it, which is great. So now we have to learn about it. Like, you need to learn every little piece of your body like for example i mean who hasn't checked out their body their own body naked i mean (laughs) you're sitting there in the tub when you're a little kid i mean you're checking out everything your toes how far you can bend your your legs put them you know whatever i mean armpit hair starting to grow you need to discover self first everybody needs to discover self first and that includes the body everything about your body so you can listen to your body especially when it's feeling ill when you're feeling good just not feeling right for whatever reason Uh, and then your mind you have your mind your body but then your emotions are all in there as well 
What does the church tell you about emotions? Not much. All they tell you is majority of of churches will tell you don't trust your emotions. But they what they never tell you is think on it a while. Think about your emotions. Think about the energy centers and the association between those emotions and those energy centers. And can you trust them or do you need to grow them? Do you need to gain more understanding about them and what they can be used for? And if we would take the approach of wanting to know more and educate ourselves about our feelings, then we're going to know more about our energy centers. And the both of them combined, we're going to learn more about the creator and what he has designed. And the whole purpose of the rainbow was to wake us up. Our bodies are one big walking rainbow of energy and light. And the first thing God created was light. Light is everywhere. You put on MVGs, you can pick up those photons moving and bouncing off everything. Light is everywhere, and light is powerful. Every single frequency of that light has its own unique, I guess you'd say, use. Each light is a different tool for a different thing. The more we know about the Creator, the more we know about our emotions in these energy centers, then the more we can practice with them and grow them and build them, and then we can also understand the Holy Spirit and what exactly it is, its energy, and what it's doing to our bodies as well. And it's growing our, all of this is growing your spirit because you're growing in knowledge. We want to grow the knowledge. We want to learn more about our bodies and what we're capable of because you're, we're talking about an infinite power source that we have always had a potential of connecting with. How do we go about that? And it's not just certain people around the world. It's like, no, everybody. But what, what, what do you have to know for this to take place? Well, you know, people like Rasputin. He was a very, very negative individual. But he was even known to be very good at using some kind of unseen force. But if there's true balance in this universe and the creator truly made a balanced creation, so it's not lopsided, otherwise it wouldn't be balanced, then what you offer to the light, you also have to offer to the dark. What you offer to the positive side, you also have to offer to the negative side. So he was just of service of self. So he was accomplishing his own selfish motives, but he understood that energy, that infinite energy that comes from the Creator and the Creator's Spirit. Everybody is equally offered the same, no matter if you choose the positive route or you choose the negative route. It's there. We just have to learn it. We have to understand it. And once we, once we understand it, then we can grow. And we can become adolescents, then we can become young adults, and then we can become grown adults, and then we can become wise elders spiritually. That's the whole message that Jesus is trying to show people by his miracles and everything he did, walking on water, calming the weather on the sea, healing everybody, and foretelling the future, seeing seeing someone's life and telling it to him in front of them. He, was ta he already knew how to tap into this over the course of his life through his studies. He searched the world uh, for knowledge, and he was informed of a lot of information that has always been accessible to us, or it's always been here, it's always been present, but it's been hidden from us. And that's what is coming out now. We have the, the validity of the Old Testament. You can verify the text staying similar because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Then you have the New Testament text, and you start to get to some 
kind of fuzzy areas where the original Greek text was hard to read and you're trying to fill it in. And then Peter and Paul were already spreading kind of a tainted message and some words were being flipped, which made huge differences and, and it caused half truth and which also caused a split of unity, which is the Trinity. So the Trinity is not at all what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about unity, being one with the Creator. We are all one, hence the law of one. How do we know that the Talmud of Emmanuel, written by Judas Iscariot, is valid? There was some other texts that come out around, let's say, 130 to 170 AD. Somewhere in between there, there there's some texts that were coming out that the church was saying were false. And they were forgeries. And one text that came out was a text from Judas. It says it was a text that came out after his death. Well, that's if you assume that what they told you to begin with is that Judas died on, on the tree, hung himself. So you have texts like this in history that have popped up. And when you read the Talmud of Emmanuel, the Sadducees and Pharisees had stolen his original work so they could read through it what everything that he had recorded because they wanted to know about about Emmanuel. Well, whatever happened to that text? Was it tossed out? Was it held on to until a certain time till they could use it and try to discredit the big Christian movement that had been sweeping the world? 140 years later, I mean, it's, it's a strong possibility that people will start releasing these writings that now don't match with the current times. Well, how do you know it wasn't a forgery? Because everybody thinks Judas Iscariot died. You know, back then you don't. <laughs> but what we have now is the rediscovery in 1960 of the original manuscripts of Talmud of Emmanuel by Judas Iscariot and everything according to his account. Well, then you say, okay, but that other text has been thrown away. You can't compare the two. All right, I got you. Well, what else is being said in the Talmud of Emmanuel? That is exactly the same. So this is what is amazing about the Law of One raw material from the channeling sessions from these three individuals who, the three individuals' names were Carla, Carla Rucker, Don Elkins, and Jim McCarty. So they were the ones doing these channeling sessions from the years 1980, 1981 to 1984, where there was a tragic death by Don Elkins. And uh, he ended up committing suicide in the house after a police standoff. It was very, very sad. But when you read the transcripts, it's totally understood what happened. Because they're doing such good work that that work was making such a bright light that the negative beings caught sight of that light and and they even talk about it and ask Ra about it. You know, what's going on here? It's like, well, you have a fifth density negative being that's trying to do this to you because they don't like what's going on here. And there was many attempts to try and hurt all three of them. And it just so ended up opening up an opportunity to hurt Don. And he's, Don Elkins was the questionnaire in the Law of One books. These people have no idea about this Talmud of Emmanuel that was discovered in 1960, held on to for 15 years, they're doing their thing. Meanwhile, in Europe, this guy who discovered the Talmud of Emmanuel, he is trying to locate a German professor, and they want to translate it directly into German. 
from English. So it went from Arabic to English to German. So they don't know each other. They have no idea about any writings. Nothing has been released. And this, these three people that are doing the channelings with Ra, the information they collect is just amazing. And unlike anything we've ever heard. And, you know, they even ask about the life of Jesus and a lot of other things, Hitler and <laughs> Abraham Lincoln and, and all kinds of things. And even modern day space programs at the time. And what these beings were saying were just so unbelievable. The questionnaire just like flat out a couple times said, I just don't believe what you're saying. This is just so mind boggling. And he's like, we have humans from the planet Earth in space right now you know, traveling the galaxies. And the answer was yes. And he's like, wow. I mean, how much have we been lied to about if this is true? But, you know, us back in the 80s, that just seemed too far-fetched. I mean, we don't even really have computers yet. I mean, they were just barely getting started. You know, we supposedly landed on the moon. And they explained this, that we absolutely did land on the moon. But then you look at the video footage, that is not the moon landing. That is how that whole thing has crept in because we really did go to the moon, but nothing we've ever been shown is them actually going to the moon. But there was real events that transpired. But the Ra group is giving all this information between the years of 81 to 84 to these three individuals. And this Talmud of Emmanuel has been undiscovered and untouched. And the two don't know each other. Well, when you open up and read the Talmud of Emmanuel, after you read the Law of One raw material, all five volumes, every last bit of it, it's saying the exact same thing. And not only that, it is saying the exact same thing as something discovered in Nebraska called the Brown Notebook from somebody else's channelings. They were saying the exact same thing as well. Not only were they just saying the same thing, they were ending their transmissions with the same line. So here, here's a, an example of the line. Every, every time they end a transmission... They, well, let me, let me start with every time they start a transmission, they say, I am Ra, I greet you in the love and the light of the infinite creator. We communicate now. At the end of every transmission, they say, I am Ra, we leave you in the love and light of the one infinite creator. Go forth, therefore, rejoice in the power and the peace of one infinite creator, Adonai. Now, that just blows me away, you know, that they sign off in that way. And they're coming to us every time saying they're coming to us in love and in light and then they go to explain in pretty good detail uh, why that is and, and who they're serving and why they're doing what they're doing and it's their way of serving the creator so after this third density we go to fourth density the split happens which way how are we going to serve the creator are we going to serve the creator by serving yourself or are we going to serve the creator by serving others so they're of the positive side of the spectrum so they're serving the creator by serving themselves or excuse me by serving others and they refer to them as the brothers and sisters of sorrow so they go to wherever callings of sorrow they feel they can help no matter where that is you have that book with the transcriptions and then you read the Talmud of Emmanuel and it's saying the exact same thing. And not only that, it's saying that Jesus was always saying this from the beginning. And that things got distorted. And once they were distorted, it got everybody on like, the shoulder of the right path. And what's happening now, the Great Awakening, we're just trying to get everybody off the shoulder. 
you know, no matter what religion, like every religion is riding on the shoulder. It's bumpy, it's gravelly, it's rough. It's not perfectly smooth. We just want everybody to get back in the middle of the road where it's smooth, straight line, heading right towards the creator. And as far as can you truly believe it, I can, i giving you a little bit of evidence for you to think about. I can't tell you you have to believe in this or else, you know. I mean, that's what, that's where the church has gone wrong. Islam, Mormons, uh, Catholics, Protestants, you name it, we've all gone wrong. We forced everybody to do this. But read for yourself. Become aware that there are these texts out there that we can look through and just see what happens when you read it. You know, for me, it felt like my spirit was wanting to jump out of my body like a kicking little baby. You know, I was so excited for what I was reading and everything just felt like it, it fell into place. Maybe with, you know, with everybody else, it'll be a different experience. I don't know, but I can't, I can't force you to do anything. I can just bring this to light and show you that there are these texts out there that give the strong possibility, the strong chance that what we know of God and the Creator has been slightly altered, just enough for us to miss the mark. And we're so close because the first step is believing in a creator. So once you believe in a creator, then the seeking begins. And we have to keep seeking. We have to keep looking. And this is just where my path has taken me. And I'm just trying to share it with everybody. So you all have your own paths. I just want to make one thing clear before I close out here. I'm not saying that because the Talmud of Emmanuel has surfaced, we just throw out all the Gospels or, or the whole New Testament, and that's not the case. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is the resurfacing of the Talmud of Emmanuel has given us something to compare the New Testament to. It's given us something that we can use to compare to what Jesus was saying in the Talmud of Emmanuel by Judas and what was written down in the Gospels, which has been exposed to thousands of years of corruption. So in this way, we can piece together by what we start to learn and understand as love and compare the Talmud to the Gospels and the New Testament. Then we can start deciphering what is not true about love and what is true about love and what is true about Jesus's life and what wasn't true. What were, were replaced to you know, feed the narrative that the church at the time was trying to do and how they're trying to abuse the Gospels and distort the message. So this way we can, like the potter, we can strip away that extra clay and finally get down to the true structure and the absolute truth. And that's what we're looking for is the absolute truth. So this is just another tool, just like the raw material. It's another tool. It's not something, it's not text that we should be putting it up on a pedestal and worshiping it like People have done the Bible for so many years, claiming you have to believe in everything in this book or else don't believe in the true God or the true Savior, who the Messiah who is meant to come. Jesus absolutely did come and preach the truth about love. He absolutely did come before the Jewish nation, and he absolutely was put on a cross and tortured and stabbed and nailed through his hands and feet and killed. I'm not trying to say it's discrediting the whole thing and it's garbage. Not at all. It's just a tool that has come for us to use to find the truth. Take a look at these texts. The Law of One is on Amazon. There's two volumes on Amazon. It's great. 
you can do that, or you can do the paperback copy. Talmud of Emmanuel's got a paperback copy. There's some individuals, like I mentioned before, Corey Good, he talks about the raw group, C-O-R-Y-G-O-O-D-E. He's on a show called Cosmic Disclosure. With It's with Gaia, but you can now find it on Amazon Prime, so you can watch uh, whatever episode you want on Amazon Prime, so it's easily available. Check these things out. I mean, there's just amazing information, and in my opinion, the Talmud, for me personally, the Talmud of Emmanuel is telling the truth, and especially because what we know nowadays, what's going on, and the Bible, I think, also verifies it as well, especially the book of Revelation. So if it's been a while since you read the book of Revelation, don't be afraid of it. It's always been there for us. People have tried to scare you in the past to be afraid of this, and, and it's just something more that we don't understand. Like these big trumpet blasts, there is a very good chance that the, when they describe these seven angels you know, blasting the trumpets, these are actually solar flares. So every angel has been described in the Bible as stars, and previously in the same text and previous texts in the New Testament that angels are stars. If the angel is coming out blasting a trumpet, it's vibration. So he's blasting vibration. The angel is the star. The star is our sun. It's blasting vibration. That is the massive surge of energy that the sun puts out to initiate change. And we know we're going through change. And there's also clouds of energetic changes that our solar system and star are going through and moving through. And it's amazing. This information is out there. And I encourage everybody to check it out, not just believe every word I say, but just listen to what I have to say to move on to discover for yourself. And that's really the only way. I mean, you can tell your little kid all day long, don't touch that stove, it's hot. But the only way they're going to learn is that they touch the stove. So I encourage you to touch the stove. Go right ahead. Put your hand on that stove and see what you find out. I'm going to wrap it up right now, but that pretty much sums up the majority of what I want to talk about, the Bible, different texts, uh, the origin, the canons, Bible canons being brought together. Can you trust them? That's up to you to discover. Also, there are a lot of theologians out there that talk about the Bible from all different perspectives. Also, Islam and Mormons. Take a look at, at the formation of the Bible and the text, and then check out this Talmud of Emmanuel. He has a, a, something to say about uh, Muhammad in there as well. And he gives a lot of praise to Muhammad. He says, like what ha is going to happen to his word is the same that's going to happen to Muhammad. It's going to get twisted and it's going to bring a lot of death because people have twisted his words. There is a lot in there for everybody. Like I said, the, the Jewish nation, Islam, the Christian nation, you know, Mormons in there as well, and, and Hindu. I mean, he even talks about his times in India a little bit with healing so you want to know about healing you want to know more about that type of stuff read the law of one uh, it goes into great detail about healing i'd love to see more people out there start to heal modern medicine is is catching up but they look at us like a machine so they want to repair the machine instead of looking at us as light everything you see is derived from light light can heal light so that's what i was talking about before that green energy center that green light the pure green light that's the great healer, and it also builds. It builds up. It can construct things, you know, using your mind, thought, and that green light from the Holy Spirit 
through your body as a conduit, it's also the great builder. So you think about it, it's kind of the same thing. You're rebuilding the body using light, that green light, and repairs things to its original form or the form you were thinking of. So it's amazing stuff. So I encourage everybody to check it out. This is the insignificant man. I am nobody special. I'm just trying to get everything out of my brain and to get you thinking about stuff. But research it on your own and go down your own path. Sit in that car of love, find that knowledge, understanding, grab that steering wheel, and, and get get on the road. All right, hope everybody's doing good. I'll see you later.